Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. This past weekend, my kids and I got to talking. We started daydreaming about all the fun things we're going to do this winter, all the things we want to do when daddy comes home from his army training, and that ever-evolving question, what do you want to be when you grow up? The answers I got were pretty typical for a seven, six, and four-year-old. My oldest wants to be a police officer or a soldier in the army like daddy. My middle child wants to be a professional wrestler, and my youngest just wanted another piece of Halloween candy. Thinking back on it, I had some pretty wild aspirations too. At one point, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Then I wanted to shoot photography for National Geographic magazine. But most importantly, I knew I wanted to be married, and I knew I wanted to be a mom. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a vocation as a summons or strong inclination to a particular state or course of action, most notably a divine call to the religious life or the work in which a person is employed, their occupation. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or USCCB for short, has a committee on clergy, consecrated life, and vocations. And every year, they commission the Center for Applied Research to conduct a survey of the religious profession class of that year. The survey polled women and men religious who professed perpetual vows in 2022 in a religious congregation, province, or monastery based in the United States. And they received some really fascinating responses from 484 of the 737 major superiors for an overall response rate of 66% among religious institutes. Here are some notable things to highlight from that survey that I found very interesting, and I hope you do too. On average, respondents report that they were 18 years old when they first considered a vocation to religious life, with half being 18 or younger when they first did so. The average age of responding religious at the profession class of 2022 was 33. Half of the responding religious are 34 or younger, the youngest is 25, and the oldest is 75. More than 9 in 10 responding religious, or 92%, have been Catholic since birth. Among those who became Catholic later in life, their average age at the time of their conversion was 11. More than 9 in 10 responding religious report that someone encouraged them to consider a vocation in religious life. Men are more likely than women to be encouraged by a parish priest, friend, mother, or parishioner. Meanwhile, women were more likely than men to be encouraged by a religious sister or brother. 2 in 10 responding religious earned a graduate degree before entering their religious institute. 75% entered their religious institute with at least a bachelor's degree. More than 84% had work experience prior to entering their religious institute. More than half were employed full-time, and 3 in 10 were employed part-time before entering their religious institute. Among those who report work experience, the main work fields were business, 
education, and healthcare. And while these numbers are impressive, they've actually dwindled from years prior. And we need good priests now more than ever. Today marks the beginning of National Vocations Awareness Week, and we have the absolute honor and privilege of speaking with Bishop Timothy Sr., the 12th Bishop of Harrisburg and former rector of St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, to help us fill in the gaps of what it means to be called to a vocation, how the journey can look different for everyone, and how we can support those discerning a call to religious life. Bishop Senior, thank you so much for joining us on Candid Catholic Convos. It is an absolute honor and a privilege to have you here, and I'm I'm very excited to get into Vocations Awareness Week with you. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Rachel. It's great to talk to you as well. For those in our audience who are just starting to get to know you, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I'm, I I just recently be, began my fifth month as the 12th Bishop of Harrisburg. I installed on, on June the 21st. It's it's been really wonderful. I, I've uh, been learning so much uh, very quickly. Still on a kind of steep learning curve, getting to know the diocese and getting around the diocese. But it's it's been really wonderful. It's been a great experience. I I um, I really feel called to be here, and uh, I'm I, I just very grateful uh, as well uh, for this great great privilege and, and to be entrusted with the ministry of being the bishop of such a wonderful diocese. So I've. Uh, yeah, I've been a priest for 38 years. Uh, I was ordained in 1985 for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and then I served in a number of administrative capacities there over the years, mainly, uh, though I was in a parish at the beginning, and I always assisted at a parish on weekends, but uh, eventually I was made an auxiliary bishop in 2009 and served uh, for 14 years as an auxiliary bishop there. Most of that time, I was the rector of uh, our seminary, St. Charles Barmeo Seminary in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. So we have uh, seminarians from the Diocese of Harrisburg who are students there, and that's been going back for a very long time. There's a there's close association between St. Charles and Harrisburg actually uh, began with the founding bishop of Harrisburg. Bishop Jeremiah Shanahan was serving as the, the rector of the college seminary uh, at St. Charles in 1868 when he was appointed as the founding bishop of, of Harrisburg. So uh, and there've been a lot of overlaps with bishops in St. Charles through those years, so it's a, it's a grace uh, to to be here now and to have this opportunity. That's fascinating. I love I love when things overlap like that. It's almost like they were yeah. divinely inspired. I want to talk a little bit about vocations, and especially with your background with St. Charles Borromeo, you are aptly prepared to speak about this. Could you explain for me when we talk about a vocation? I think a lot of us think of that question when we grow up. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want my job to be this. Is there a difference between a vocation and a job, or is there something specific for the definition of vocation as it applies to religious life? Well, I just take it very high level. We're all in the world for a reason. God has given every one of us the precious gift of life for a purpose, to do his will, uh, to fulfill God's plan in our life, to come to discover that and then pursue it with all your heart, that's the most important thing you're ever going to do. Uh, and I, would say, I, I say this a lot. Uh, I speak about it mainly in confirmations. I want the, the young people who are being confirmed to think about the fact that God does indeed have a plan for them. And he's made each one of us just the way we are, with our strengths and weaknesses, even our weaknesses, um, our, our personalities and the gifts and talents. All of that works together to basically to play an irreplaceable role in the lives of other people. God invites us basically to collaborate with him. 
that God wants to use us and to live in us and to affect uh, the lives of other people in a positive way. So coming to discover that plan, first of all, it's, it's not always clear, not always clear at first. Sometimes there's a number of twists and turns, so we need to be patient. Uh, and the other thing is it almost always involves sacrifice in some degree. Uh, and I would say, too, that we shouldn't be afraid of that, you know, that the most fulfilling, meaningful uh, experiences that we've had in life, uh, that I've had in my life, have, have always involved some degree of setting aside myself or what I would rather do and to be open to what I believe God is calling me to do. And we think about that in, in some of the sort of core vocations of life. You think, think about marriage where the spouses give themselves to each other. Uh, you know, they used to say marriage is, is it's not 50-50. It's 100% and 100%, right? And certainly parents, uh, you know, when we think about all of us are here today because for the most part, somebody else loved us enough to make some pretty significant sacrifices for us. So that vocation and 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 life our planning for our lives almost always involves some degree of letting go of myself so that I can really flourish as a person. As Christians, we believe that that takes the form of following Jesus Christ, following in the footsteps of Christ. And what does Jesus say? If you want to be my follower, you got to take up your cross and follow in my footsteps. Uh, so I think that coming to discover that uh, it has it happens in many levels. And we, we, we speak in the church of vocation as a state of life. We're called to the married life, to the single life, to the consecrated life, or to ordained ministry as a priest or deacon. And sometimes there's overlaps between those, right? Also, though, I, I think that all, of, all, all people of faith can, can certainly connect their, their professional life to a vocation. On Sunday this past week, I, I celebrated the Mass for Healthcare Professionals at uh, St. Joan of Arc Parish in Hershey. And there were, I guess, about maybe 40 or 45 uh, physicians, medical students, nurses, health, other healthcare professionals who were present. You know, healthcare is a vocation, you know, and when you think about the sacrifices, not only that they, they carry on in their graduate studies, which takes so many, many years, but the sacrifices that physicians and healthcare professionals provide, we, we all came to a greater appreciation of that with COVID, didn't we? Uh, when we realized how important those heroes are on the front lines, if you remember three years ago. So there, I, I do believe that, 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 that we can discover that, uh, the vocation of, of attorneys or people who get into politics, for example, or, or people who get into technology and, and use their creative energies for that, or, or people who work in communications like yourself. You know, there's, a, there's a, definitely a calling there. People who work in the trades, you know, uh, to, to work with our hands, to work in that very, very important uh, aspect of, of building or constructing or caring for people, helping to make other people's lives better. I think you can probably find every job and think of it in terms of a vocation and recognize the hand of God in that. And the hand of God, we call it God's providence, that we discover God's will and, uh, and, and we pursue it. How does that relate specifically to the religious life? I, I believe that for myself, you know, as a, as a, as a priest and bishop now, uh, I have a, a very clear sense that, that my vocation and my professional life, for lack of a better term, is grounded in a discernment that I basically made as a young man that I was called to the priesthood, that I believe this was, in fact, what God wants me to do. Now, I, I don't think that that is 
a un, it, it, it's unique in the sense that it that uh, discovering a call to the priesthood or to the consecrated life as a woman or, or man male religious uh, in 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 the church that 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 certainly is a is a very spiritual discernment but I think all of us can discern and we need to pray about what God's calling us to do in in our professional lives and in, and in our certainly in our life choices. That's fascinating, and I I love what you said about the divine providence. It, it certainly phrasing it that way makes it easier to get up to go to work on a Monday morning after you've had a long weekend and yeah. aren't really ready to get back to the grind. It helps to know that this is what God really wants me to do. Yes, and it's it's a way that we can honor God yeah. by fulfilling what He's asked us to do. He's put me in this situation because first of all, because He loves me, and I've got to always remember that. And that he, he he loves all of us equally, and uh, he wants us to flourish, and we have to be able to find his will in that. That's beautiful, and I like what you said about discernment and about how it, it's not exclusive to religious life. It's uh, it's with everything in life, with discerning yeah. a career, or, you know, married life, single life, what have you. It's everything is about yeah. discerning God's call. And God always wants what's best for us. You know, we think of those beautiful words in the prophet Jeremiah. I, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a future full of hope. That's one of my favorite verses. Yeah. <laughs> Would you mind expanding a little bit on your personal journey? Um, yeah. Let's t- Can we talk about your discernment and how you learned mm. that this is what God wanted you to do? Sure, sure certainly. I, I, I grew up in a, in a uh, relatively traditional Catholic family. Um, uh, my parents were both Catholic. The, I, I'm the youngest of three. Um, my mother in particular was very active in the church. She was a, a taught for decades as a, in, in uh, parochial schools and then was also uh, a musician and, and directed our parish choir. She was a singer as well in the church throughout her life. And um, uh, so as a, a, as a young man, uh, as a, really as a child, I started uh, studying music. I studied, started studying the piano when I was seven years old. And um, that eventually led me into participation in the parish choir, with where my, which my mother was the director, and then eventually studying the organ as well. Um, along the way, too, when I was in about the fifth grade, I became an altar boy, an altar server. And that I remember uh, between those two things, the, ex, the, the closeness to the liturgy and the celebration of the Eucharist, I think awakened in me an interest. First, it was just sort of a curiosity and it was really a, a, a deeper sense of an awareness that, you know, that maybe God was calling me to the priesthood. And I did get that at a very young age. I can remember being in eighth grade, um, again, as an altar server, but I was, it was, it was during adoration uh, that I had a very clear feeling. Actually, there was a young man with me whom I thought, I remember talking and praying a little bit and I'm saying, I bet you, I bet you, you know, he's, he's called to the priesthood. And, uh, but I had a deeper sense that uh, I, an awareness that that's when it was beginning to come forward in me. Playing the organ for mass and getting involved in the, in the liturgy in that way also opened it up. Music in general for me is a very spiritual uh, experience for me. Uh, I'm sure it is for many people, but uh, people say, why do you play the piano? Is it a hobby? It's more than a hobby. It's, it's really part of my spirituality and part of the way I, I get centered in life. And so that that would be that was the context in which by the time i was in high school i i really was thinking very seriously of it when i was a freshman i i started hanging out in the guidance office and looking a little bit at brochures and things they had there about religious orders i i remember pulling out a couple of uh, 
cards and sending them away. And all of a sudden, a, a packet of information came from the Jesuits. Uh, my my mother and father looked at this, and you know, I'm 13 years old. And what, what are you, what's he thinking about here? <laughs> and also the Vincentians, I remember at that time, because my parents grew up in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, uh, which is uh, all those parishes, almost all of them uh, back in those days and even to this day were staffed by the Vincentians, Vincentian priests, the Congregation for the Mission and and uh, the the Shrine of the Miraculous Medal is there uh, as well. So uh, my I started thinking about that because my parents were always talking about the Vincentians in Germantown. But I, I set it aside after after that and it really wasn't until everybody else was applying to colleges that uh, I was a senior in high school, and I, I, I sort of publicly manifested a desire to, to go into the seminary. So I did. I, I discerned again for a while. Um, my uh, parents were concerned about me entering. I, was just, I had just turned 17 when I graduated from high school, from Lansdale Catholic High School in Montgomery County. And uh, they were they re- realizing that they really wanted me to wait, get a little more life experience. My father in particular wanted me to be at least 18, I was reluctant about that, but I applied at other places and um, was eventually I, it was decided I would go to Temple University for my first year of college. I was uh, I went to the Temple University Ambler campus in Montgomery County there, and it was a great experience. And during that year, a couple uh, things that I that happened was I, I really looked again at religious life as opposed to the diocesan priesthood, which I eventually, obviously, uh, did. Uh, I looked again at the Jesuits and. Uh, in particular, and was discerning between a, 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 a sense that I could have uh, the consecrated life as a religious priest in, in, the, in the Society of Jesus versus the diocesan priesthood. But by about March of my freshman year in college, it became clear that I felt that I was wanted to enter St. Charles Borromeo Seminary for the diocesan priesthood. The other major thing that happened in that, uh, talk about God's providence, was uh, right after I graduated from high school, my father uh, had become very ill. And uh, it was actually in in that summer, early in that summer, that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he, he died uh, Labor Day weekend of what would have been you know, the weekend before I would have entered the seminary. So I was, I was home for a year with my mother and my sister. My brother was already living on his own. And um, I did exactly what my father wanted me to do. I got, I got a job. I, I worked at, at Wanamaker's in Montgomery Mall for a year. Um, and for that year, and I also, uh, Wanamaker's was a department store in Philadelphia back in the day. <laughs> it's, I don't know that it's been Wanamaker's in a while, but, and I also, uh, again, as I mentioned, looked at other, other religious, uh, orders as a possibility. I mean, I eventually was a, applied to the seminary and was accepted and I started in, in 1978. Discernment though, you know, the decision to go into the seminary is not, it's not an absolute commitment then I'm definitely going to be a priest. The seminary is a place where you're with other young men who are also discerning a, a call to the priesthood, which is a wonderful experience. It's it helps very helpful, but you know there's plenty of steps along the way where you you really have to focus and say, is God actually calling me to go on? And it's not just an individual's decision. The you know the church calls it a man to the priesthood. And that decision is usually on the basis of a recommendation from a, a team of faculty at, at a seminary. Some priests, usually uh, consecrated religious and, and lay faculty that, that work together 
to help a young man to discern. And then they make a recommendation and ultimately a bishop calls on behalf of the church uh, a man to the priesthood. So, it, uh, and I always used to say that to, you know, to young men, you know, it's a good context to discern, but you don't have to be absolutely certain. And by the way, absolute certainty is not something that we have in any vocation. You know, there's going to be bad days in everything. And you're going to say, is this really what I should be doing? You know, that happens, you know. Um, so we, we, we can't get discouraged, you know. Uh, there's uh, complete certitude is only going to come in heaven. You know, so there's, God invites us to trust. And there's always an element of risk. And that's true when, when a, a man and a woman fall in love and they decide to commit themselves in marriage. There's always an element of trust and risk. And the same thing is true with sort of an abandonment of self in, in a professional choice. Or, and that's certainly the case for the priesthood. So I, I, I trusted and went along the way. And during the, during the course of the seminary, I did again uh, reach out to uh, uh, the vocation director for the Jesuits in the, of the Maryland province. And uh, they helped me again to discern a call to, to diocesan priesthood. And I was ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, as I said, in, in May of 1985. That's uh, that's quite a journey. And and first of all, from one temple aisle to another, oh. I was <laughs> I was the main campus. Um, but I I love what you said about how seminary isn't isn't a guaranteed thing. It's a it's a discernment process. It strikes me that sem you described seminary as a as a discernment process where. Most people, when they think of college, they think of a college experience and you're probably going to change your major a few times, but, you know, you might change colleges. But seminary is more designed for figuring out that thought process and making sure that you're actually right. hearing what you think you're hearing. Is is right. that correct in, in that assumption? Yes, it is. it is. You know, first of all, it's more than academics. Mm. You know, it's, it's as a matter of fact, that's an important component of it. They are, um, you know, seminaries are typically have to be fully accredited. Uh, usually by the secular accrediting body. And here in Pennsylvania, it would be the Middle States Commission on Higher Education. But seminaries usually also have a, a theological accreditation, the Association of Theological Schools. So there is an important academic aspect of this, and they get degrees. You know, at St. Charles, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, and that is the only major that you can have at St. Charles on the undergraduate level. And then a master's degree and um, Master of Arts in Theology. And, and before that, there's a professional uh, degree called the Masters of Divinity, which is typical for for uh, other denominations as well. It's not just uniquely to Catholic. But there are four dimensions to priestly formation. Intellectual or academic formation is just one. Now, sometimes seminarians think that it, it is a disproportionate amount of time spent that way. But there's also human formation, spiritual formation, and pastoral formation. And they're very, very, they're equally important. You know, St. John Paul II uh, was the w w began to speak in terms of uh, those four dimensions in a document that that he wrote in the early 1990s called Pastores Dabo Vobis. I will give you shepherds, and that really changed the emphasis of uh, or expanded, I should say, the emphasis of seminary formation. Still, in the early years after the Second Vatican Council, and in, in to say, hey, wait a second, it's more than just school. It's Human formation, it's pastoral formation. It's that you know, human formation is basically maturity, affective maturity. Uh, to be a priest, you really do have to have a, 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 a you have to have good interpersonal skills. 
You have to be able to form healthy relationships. You have to be able to joyfully and freely embrace a celibate lifestyle, celibate and make that commitment uh, to live chastely and, and as a celibate, but joyfully. And, and, and that requires integration that, that takes time and a lot of discernment and careful work with a young man. Spiritual formation, you would presume that, right? But that's your relationship with God. Uh, that that's extremely important because any kind of experience of, uh, you know, the, the relationship with God in a very explicit way, I, I, I have to have that tap into the well of God's grace in my relationship with God if I'm ever going to be able to lead other people to do the same thing. And that's, it's not, again, not unique to anybody. We all need human formation. We all need spiritual formation as well. But that's so typically a seminarian would have a uh, he has to have a spiritual director with whom he would meet every two to three weeks. Um, you know, and that's a, like like confession, but it's a one-on-one relationship where a, a seminarian, and, and uh, you know, really focuses on what's God doing in my life right now. And that's something that priests uh, and all people can have as well, but, you know, priests really need to have a spiritual director as well, too. Uh, I've, I've always been in direction from the time I was in the seminary. And it's uh, real important. And then finally, pastoral formation. That's kind of the toolbox that, that priests have, you know. Uh, things that would be in, in pastoral formation would be homiletics. Preaching is very important. Now, you need a theological basis for that to do it well. So there's a, there's, there's a lot. That's, but also it would be, uh, you know, celebrating the sacraments. How, what's the practical? How do you say mass? How do you administer the sacraments? What about um, leadership and organization and administration in a parish and and working with working with with groups and and how do you do personnel management because priests get into all of that that's all kind of pastoral formation um, how do we effectively engage young people and older people and married couples and families and that's again pastoral formation but you can see that all four of those dimensions they interact they're interdependent so they're not discrete and if they're not talking to each other you can end up with a you know uh, somebody who um, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't have all those dimensions. I mean, nobody has the whole package where nobody's perfect. So, I mean, there are going to be priests that are maybe a little bit shy on the, the human formation side, you know, and maybe a little bit uh, reticent to speak who are brilliant scholars, you know, and sometimes that, that, that's okay. It, you know, it, it balances itself out. You find someone who's very, very like St. John Vianney, uh, was a terrible student. You know, he struggled <laughs> incredibly, but I mean, he's a saint. He was incredibly pastoral. He was a, he was a great preacher and he was totally dedicated to his people. He was a model for, he's the patron saint of secular priests. So we all have strengths and weaknesses, but ideally they, in, in a seminary, those four dimensions are integrated. And every seminarian has a formation advisor, a priest who helps him to do that. And that is also every like three weeks that he meets with him, and that that priest helps him goes through all those areas and you know works and accompanies him on a one on one basis. So it takes a long time, you know. It's anywhere from seven to nine years. Wow! And at this point now, so it, it would depend on how much education you've had before you went in the seminary. But if you've already graduated from college, uh, it would it, it's really a seven year program. After that, coming in right out of high school, it would be nine years now. So. It takes time to discern. And I always say it takes a long time to become a brain surgeon, too. Absolutely. You know, if you're a neurosurgeon, it's going to take a long time. 
And 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 wouldn't you like to know that you know if somebody's going to operate on your brain that they they went to school for a long time and learned how to do that? Well, I always say the same thing. You know, if I'm going to entrust my immortal soul to someone, I certainly hope that that he's been prepared and he's discerned and that he's you know the right guy to, that I could trust with my soul. Absolutely. Just like I trust my brain or my body or my heart. To a competent physician. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. When you put it that way, it's it makes so much sense that they have to spend that yeah. much time. It's such an all-encompassing program. It's three hundred sixty like. degrees. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The closest thing would be like military. You know, the military where you're trained to, you know, to to do very very difficult things, and they have to. Be, there's a psychological dimension to it. You've got to really be, um, you know, all all dimensions have to be taken into account to have a really healthy priest. That's exactly the the lateral draw that I was going to make. My husband is um, in the Army National Guard, and he when he went to boot camp and the amount of time that he spent there, even just the amount of time that he spends in specialized training, it's just it's I guess seminary is kind of like an extensive boot camp program for for priests to make sure that yeah. they have all the right tools in their toolbox. It is, and you know, part of that pastoral formation, by the way, too, is that it, it seminarians are not just in the seminary. They spend a lot of time in parishes, in ministry, uh, uh, on you know, in internships and field placements. You know, working in, in healthcare facilities or uh, serving in, in um, colleges and universities, and and on the ground, uh, it's very very important that they have that they take what they're learning and, and experiencing in the seminary and begin to put it into practice early on in their formation. The days when seminarians were sort of squirreled away and came out ten years later sort of out pop the priest in 10 years um that's that's not the case at all it's a much more open environment uh, people some think, sometimes people think that seminarians are are uh, you know isolated uh and uh, that's not the case they they they're more dialed in uh, you know we now especially with things like social media and everything like that they would be telling me things that i you know when i was the rector for 10 years that i they you they thought i would know but i didn't you know <laughs> So uh, there's and there's also a um, that that need to get the broader Catholic community in, in and people of other faiths as well to give the seminary feedback, you know, because a young man, uh, you know, can they can they can make observations in a parish setting that a seminary faculty really needs to hear. And sometimes, you know, a seminarian to go out there and I, we, I used to call it the halo effect. Oh, he's a seminarian. He's a nice young man. You know, we never say anything negative, but the church really needs you to be honest and say, you know, we got to. He needs help with this, you know, or he he needs some uh, uh, coaching, um, and we need to be told that. You know, we the seminary faculty, ultimately the bishop, who would make the decision to call him. So that feedback uh, is really important, and they get it a lot in parishes. Yes, it's a really a real boots on the ground situation, getting a, it has a taste to be, and yeah. feel. Yeah. But, I can imagine drawing the parallel with the military again. There needs to be some sort of family support. Um, and you mentioned in seminarians have lots of support with um, a spiritual director um, and then meeting with priests for religious education. What about personally? Was there someone for you personally coming in? You mentioned that your father wasn't exactly on board initially, um, but was there somebody in your life who who was who was who was in your corner the whole time? Well, yeah, my my I was the youngest of the of the three of us, and um, I know I think my mother was enthusiastic about it. 
my father was actually very, very supportive. In a sense, he wanted me to do whatever, you know, that I felt was best. You know, he wanted me to feel that a certain freedom. Um, his fear was that maybe I was being pressured into it, you know, mm. by the by the folks at, in the, at the high school, that, you know, some of the priests that would have kind of seen in me the possibility and encouraged me to do this. Uh, I was never, I never felt pressured. Uh, I mean, I, I also remember, you know, my, my mother saying to me, it was a year after my father had died. It was still kind of a difficult time in our family, but when they dropped me off at the seminary, um, on the first day, it was a very emotional moment, but she said to me, anytime, day or night, you want to come home, just call me and we will be here, you know. So I never felt pressured to stay, but I did feel encouraged by them. I would say my, my paternal grandmother was very, very um, my Mimi, my, my father's mother. And of course, she had lost her son uh, at a very young, uh, relatively young age. He was only 54 when he died. Mm -hmm. uh, so she lived uh, into her 90s and, you know, saw me become a priest. And, you know, as a, I was I had just finished graduate school when, uh, as a, in Boston College we've, when she passed away. She was, uh, I would say, a person who was, you know, completely encouraging me. I also had two aunts who were religious, Sister, Sister Margaret Rothwell, Sister St. Margaret, who was a sister of St. Joseph of Philadelphia, my mother's sister, and then Sister Regina Celeste, my, my aunt. Uh, my father's sister was an Immaculate Heart sister from Immaculata. And they both were obviously in my corner. Uh, and there were priests along the way, too. You know, at the seminary faculty uh, were wonderful. And I, I you know, when my father, I was only 17 when my father died. So I, I was, we, I still, need a, I still needed a father. You know, I needed, especially in discernment. My older brother was very, very much that way. He's 12 years older than I am. He he played that role a lot, and the priests of the seminary, several of them in particular, uh, two they're both deceased now. Uh, I I I don't think I would be I would never have made it through the seminary if it wasn't for Monsignor Daniel Mary God God rest him and uh, Monsignor John Miller, both of whom one was my spiritual director and the other one was my formation advisor <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> and they accompanied me through life as well too. He passed away within the last ten years after I became a bishop. But I, you know, they they were they were really important folks uh, along the way. I had another another priest that year that I was that I waited. You know, that I, my first year in college, there was a a parish priest um, in, in, uh, at a neighboring parish that I had met through a family that was very close close to me, um, classmate of mine from high school, and uh, we were over there for lunch, and I met him one day, Father Peter Funk, and uh, he, uh, I started meeting with him in a sort of a quasi spiritual direction type. And he, he was the one who really had a tremendous impact on me because he really encouraged me and helped me to take the whole thing to prayer. And he very practically taught me how to pray in a, in a different way, in a, what we would move towards, what we used to call it mental prayer or contemplation, uh, and that sort of a how-to really encouraging me to, to create space for God and to, and to get into a, med, a power, you know, like a, a process of meditation. Um, and scripturally based to what we would call Lexio Divina, you know, the prayerful reading of Scripture. So he had a that was that was a huge part of my discernment uh, along the way. I had I had I also I, in high school the Sisters of Saint Francis of Philadelphia, who staffed Lansdale Catholic High School, had made a major impact on me. Uh, and uh, as teachers, as consecrated religious women, uh, who encouraged me and also gave me the freedom. 
to ask a lot of questions. I think I drove them crazy, but were very supportive in, in accompanying me. And so they still, God bless them, some of them have passed on, but um, some of those sisters were really important. And I had a great group of friends, too. Uh, Lansdale Catholic is still a kind of a familial community of those who are familiar with the school. It's all on the smaller side of, of the diocesan high schools in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia um, community. And I, it still was that it was certainly that way in nineteen in the 1970s. And uh, I had some very, very close friends, one of whom uh, had passed away at 44 years of age, uh, Matt Walsh. But uh, he was the first person I told that I wanted to be, I wanted to go into seminary. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, and he, again, all throughout life and, you know, his wife and children and sons, I baptized them and his sons and we were, they were there for me throughout this. So I've been blessed. Great friends, great role models, great family. That's wonderful. And I love I love that the first person you told you felt comfortable telling your friend because I think especially as a teenager, that's so even just as a as a young person, that's that's yeah. so important to not just have your parents on your side, but to have your friends and the people who you spend a lot of time with, like your teachers, yeah. being able to be with you on this journey, I think, especially such an important journey that requires that, so Yeah, much that was time. the community. That's why I say that, that Lansdale Catholic community, you could free to be yourself. I mean, you know, I was playing the piano. I was, you know, giving, working and doing recitals and all. I was, I was very active in music um, at the same time. And kind of we were, Matt was a, a tremendous athlete. He was the captain of everything, you know, <laughs> and it was football, basketball, and track. Went on to a scholarship at Swarthmore College, you know, and it was was a, he was a tremendous athlete. Uh, so we were kind of yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs> I love And he that. would come to my concerts. <laughs> Earlier we talked about having to make sacrifices for your vocation, making sure that you're following God's calling. What would you say, either yours or a challenge that you've noticed other seminarians having in the process of discernment? What would you say are some of the common challenges or sacrifices you've seen having to made? Well, there is. It's getting back to that trust issue. Um, I think there's a tendency among young people in general today, younger generation, I would say, uh, of wanting a level of certitude before making a commitment that I, I think it's hard to uh, uh, to guarantee. Um, there's always going to be an element of risk, and uh, and some of our some young men. He, you know, they, they don't want to make a mistake and become a priest and then have to leave mm. because something happens or they would be afraid or they fall in love and leave, want to leave and want to get married, you know. So they, they're looking for uh, a desire uh, to, to uh, have a cl- level of clarity that, that, that it, it's hard to, hard to guarantee that. There's always going to be sacrifice. Uh, it's not, you know, when you, when you become clear of your call, to the priesthood, yes, it is integrally related to a call to celibacy. So if you if you absolutely do not feel called to celibacy, you're not called to the priesthood. <laughs> you know, and that's a hard thing for some guys to hear, and it's hard, it's difficult. But I think I think we know that, you know, they you know, I had a, a very one of my closest friends in the seminary became a priest and and three years after our ordination, he he discerned out because he felt and had carried with him a, a uh, an unresolved uh really a feeling that he, he was not called to celibacy and found it extremely burdensome. Um, so young people today, they want to avoid that kind of a thing. And obviously, seminary wants to avoid that too. You know, we, we, we don't do, uh, but it's the, the, a call to celibacy does not mean that you're, you're not still going to be 
you know, and that you won't still, uh, for example, miss having a family and having, you know, that you, I would see that with my brother or sister and their children, that unique relationship that parents have, that I, I you know, that I would wonder what it would have been like, you know, had I been married and, and had a family and, and, you know, at different times in your life, you can, you miss that, you know, when I was younger, it was a totally different kind of an experience, like celibacy at 25 and the commitment to that is when all my friends were getting married and, you know, and I was married and eventually marrying them, you know, things like that was, that's a very different experience than what it's like at 55 or 60, where you, you start saying, you know, I would have had grandchildren, you know, or I would have, uh, you know, and you kind of miss that sense of, uh, of belonging to others. But, and it's a but, God fills that void in, in wonderful ways. You have to be open to it. So, but I guess, you, you know, it's not, you, the, the, the humanity never goes away. You hand that, you give that to God. You know, a priest has to give his sexuality completely to God. We all do. Everybody's called to chastity, you know, but he has to, in a, uni, in a unique way, with, uh, to be a celibate priest, chaste, chaste celibate priest. And so that's a, that's a lifelong process. You, that commitment needs to be renewed, you know, and you need to ask God for the grace. And God provides the grace. And there are moments when you're lonely and you got to have good friends, got to have good people to pick up the phone and call, you know, very good, healthy, have a, have a, has to be a robust prayer life because you bring that to God and you tell, you know, pour your heart out to the Lord for whatever the reasons are. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it, there's sacrifices all along the way. So I think that's one of the things. And I, I think that that, I mean, maybe this is a conjecture on my part, but I think there's this could be part of the reason why we've seen a decline in the number of marriages in our society in general. Um, you know, maybe they just don't feel they have to get married, or couples don't want to get married. Uh, you know, but or is it or is it a reluctance to make that commitment, a lifelong commitment? Um, you know, I, I I think or you know they can make that make that commitment to you know become a teacher. You know, that's a vocation. Why do we need, why we, 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 our schools need, they can't fill the positions. We need more teachers. You know, it's a good example of that. Or nurses. Could we ever have too many nurses? It's a lot of work, it's a lot of sacrifice. And I think that maybe there's a reluctance sometimes uh, to say, well, I don't think I can make that. Or I wouldn't, what if I don't, what if I start? And it, you got to take a chance at one point. You know, don't be, you know, like that, you don't, you can't ignore the major, the major yellow lights or red lights that say, no, 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 no. And you have to be transparent about that. Uh, certainly in discernment of vocation for the priesthood. That's, that's the one thing I'd say. And perfectionism, you know, it's kind of a perfectionist thing. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I love that. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good because you can't move forward if you're too stuck on what has to be perfect or I can't do it. Yeah, I have absolute certitude. Oh, my goodness. And even just, I, I love what you said about, you know, even with the decline in marriages. I remember when we were getting married about 12 years ago, I was so excited to be engaged in like the office that I was working for at the time. We went out for lunch and one of the women at the table who I don't know what her relationship status was. I think she was getting divorced, but she she was like, why would you want to get married? Like, you're just going to be different people in 10 years. And I think my answer to her at the time was a little crass, but I was like, well, that's kind of the point is I want to be with him in 10 years. But it's just I've noticed that as well. It's just even in my own life, just feeling like I need to be sure of something or like looking for a sign. But 
like you said, it's all about trust. Yeah, and you don't, I mean, there's a balance. You don't rush in. You can't make them, you know, don't, if it's obvious that it's not the right thing to do, you can't say, well, I'm just going to, you know, white knuckle it. Sure. Like I used to, that, you know, seminarians who would just decide to white knuckle celibacy when they really know in their heart they're not called to it. That's a a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. But you have to really help a guy to come to have the freedom to do that. So you give them you give them the freedom, and you still have to make a decision, right? You know, and uh, and and making that commitment does require a certain amount of abandonment and trust in God. Absolutely. What advice would you give to a young person discerning religious life, whether that's priesthood, whether that's consecrated life? You know, let God surprise you. And I would say, you know, God said Pope Francis speaks about God surprising all the time. He's a God of surprises. Uh, remember that remember that God does uh, choose the weak ones to shame the proud you know and that's all through the sacred scriptures um, you know when Peter is, is has the miraculous catch of fish with Jesus and the first thing he says to Jesus is leave, leave me Lord I am a sinful man uh, and that humility uh, Jesus is undeterred by that and says you know from now on you'll be you'll be fishing you'll be uh, catching men he says uh, or when, you you know, all the prophets in the Old Testament, there's always that, um, you know, I'm too young. Uh, say not I am too young. You know, the, the, the prophet uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah also, you know, so they have their discouragement. Uh, but let God surprise you and, and, and be open to how he's going to use you. Um, and pray. Prayer is so important, you know, to be grounded in prayer and be open to direction. And assistance in that and guidance to that. Yeah. That's lovely. I love I, I love that though. Let God surprise you. And I feel like that that's applicable in any aspect of life. Yeah. That's just that's a wonderful thought. So going back to being supportive and, and encouraging someone along the way. I'm a mom of three boys and I have a feeling that one of them is probably going to grow up to be a priest. So my middle one, I have, Um, I have a feeling, but what advice would you give to parents Mm. whose child has come to them and said, this is what I think I want to do? Yeah. It's real important. Um, Do you know that the, that family's encouraging vocations is very, very important. Um, There, it, it plays an irreplaceable role. It's not to say that it's, you know, in the, there are there are guys who would enter the seminary and go on to ordination, and all along the way, their parents really say, "I really, really wish you weren't doing this." Um, and they could be even be practicing Catholics. And sometimes young men, you know, discern a call to the priesthood, and they come from a family where there isn't, but they haven't practiced the faith. Or, you know, he, you know, they may have had a conversion experience when they were in college, and they get connected with the church, and they start to discern a call to the priesthood. And the parents are saying, "Like, where is this coming from?" You know, he wasn't this way in high school. Um, so try to be open to supporting, uh, your son or daughter as they, as they are doing this and, and be open to how God is working. Ultimately, a family is going to, uh, have many graces and, uh, to have a priest in the family or have a consecrated religious this, that brings great joy, um, to, to parents. I think sometimes, especially if they tend to have smaller families now, you know, if you haven't, uh, you know, they say, well, I'm never going to have grandchildren. You know, but there are sacrifices associated with that, uh, for, with all 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 the choices that your young people will make. You know, and I, I think too. There's, uh, you know, the the, frankly, the you know the the difficult times that we've had as a church in the last twenty years, the sexual abuse scandal, 
I think, uh, you know, has, has undermined the confidence of, of so many people in leadership. And so, you know, the putting your, putting your, your, you know, your son at risk, you know, in a sense of, of, you know, what's it going to be like? I think the, the, the remedy to that is you get to know other seminarians, you get to know the seminary well, you, you get involved in the community and you realize that, you know, that perhaps the way the church is portrayed is not accurate at all. You know, that that's a tremendous distortion. So, so often, yes, terrible things happen. Mistakes were made and we were every day to make sure that but that's not going to happen, you know, that you, 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 in a very transparent way. It's, it's a totally different type of thing. But, but don't, you know, some people are saying, I, don't, I would be afraid of that, you know. I actually remember when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I remember uh, one, this was 1976. So we were maybe, uh, you know, it's just not 11 years out from the Second Vatican Council, right? But there had been, if you remember, a lot of priests left the priesthood, religious sisters left in large numbers after Vatican II in the late 60s and early 70s. And that was still in the air by the time I was in high school. Um, you know, we had priests left from the, from uh, a number of priests left the priesthood from Lansdale Catholic while I was a student there. So it was still going on. And I remember my, my one aunt said, you know, we just, our church is in, is, is, is really going through very, a lot of turmoil right now. Uh, you know, I think that I think your parents. She was just advising me, saying, "I think that you know, your mother and father are just worried that that um, things are just so unstable." And that that was in 1976. I remember that. I think the same thing is true today. So, uh, just advising, you know, that uh, talk about it, ask the questions, go to the ask the seminary about it. You know, how do we? What is the formation program? Uh, you know, get information rather than just act on perceptions, uh, and and then be open to how again. God could be working in your son's life or your daughter's life in a way that uh, yeah, you weren't expecting. And be surprised. And be surprised, mm -hmm. right? I love that. Mm -hmm. So how can the rest of us in the diocese support? I mean, maybe we don't have sons and daughters who are, are looking, but, you know, we're active in the church or we're, you know, just we just want to be supportive mm -hmm. of those in religious life. What are some what are some ways we can support them on their journey? Well, I've been asking everyone here um, – in the diocese of Harrisburg to, to pray for vocations, uh, and to encourage vocations. You know, the, right now we have 11 seminarians right now, uh, God willing, four of them will be ordained to the priesthood, uh, in June of next year. Uh, the, uh, we, we accepted two young men this year. So, uh, but we, we need to build up our, our, our that. And I believe the vocations are there uh, to the priesthood and to the consecrated life. And, uh, we have, uh, so you know, I, I would, so in, in addition to praying, that's why I put that on my holy card when I was uh, installed, is a prayer for vocations to the priesthood and the consecrated life here in the diocese of Harrisburg. But in addition to praying, I, I uh, there there are also opportunities to concretely support seminarians. Uh, we have the Fishers of Men uh, appeal here in the diocese to to help uh, to to defray the cost of their education and their formation. That's a really important sacrificial way to help to encourage vocations. And the other, the other, the third way is maybe a little bit more difficult, but it really makes a difference. Uh, you know, if, if you see someone whom you think might have the attributes to be a good priest uh, or, or to be religious, that you, you, you think they might be, you might have seen a stirring in them, a certain piety or a, a reverence or uh, just to personality issues that you might think, 
Yeah, go ahead and say, did you ever think about becoming a priest? Or I think you'd make a really good priest. I will tell you that people used to say that to me, and I used to say, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be anything else but. I wanted to be a baseball player, of course. I wanted to be a doctor, which I knew God was not calling me to that. I don't think I could have ever done it. And I want to be a lawyer. You know, I wanted to go into politics. You know, I was going to, or a musician. I was going to be a concert pianist. You know, um, well, I ended up being a priest, and I know that this is the God's the right decision for me. But people used to say that to me, and I, I was uh, uh, not open to it when I heard it, and I react. But I, but inside, I, I, I was increasingly aware that they were right. So take a chance. You know, you got nothing to lose. Just say. It's a compliment, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it says you have the personality yeah. of someone who would be good at this. I, I think that that's, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. So, Bishop Senior, thank you so much for, for giving us your time and just speaking to us so passionately about life in the seminary and, and what our seminarians are going through and why we should support vocations. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful Vocations Awareness Week. Thanks so much, yes. And again, so grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash D-A-C and clicking the Make a Donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.